chapter 1. And so you can find that in your pew Bible on page 952. Page one, uh, 952. We're going to be taking a break for a little while. But we'll return to James in October. I want to start by thanking you uh, for sending me on vacation. I, I don't take it for granted. Uh, Cheryl and Jonathan and I very much appreciate your support uh, throughout the year, throughout all the years we've been together, and especially this opportunity to have time away and for us to visit family uh, out in Idaho. And so you're going to be in good hands as you were last summer. You will be again this summer in August. We have uh, dear friend Ben Wickner will be preaching next Sunday and leading communion. And then he will be followed by uh, Jeff Rickett, who preached here last year. Jeff is a Presbyterian pastor by training. He's now uh, director of Heartsong Christian Counseling. He's a, a counselor and a director of, of a program that's helping people um, work through issues in life. And then Paul uh, Kim, our, our own candidate for nation, will be preaching the following week. And that's the same Sunday, the 21st, that uh, Steve Kim will be introduced to the congregation as our new uh, director of worship music. And then I'll be back the, the week after that, but late in the week. And so our own Sako Kim will be preaching that following Sunday. So I want us to turn our attention from the book of James now to the book of Corinthians. And don't worry, we're not going to cover the whole thing. First and second Corinthians, would, we'd be here a while. Now, Corinth was a major city in ancient Greece. They had lots of temples to Greek and Roman gods, and it was a big economic center. And Paul strategically went there as a missionary for a year and a half to talk to people about Jesus and to preach the gospel. And a lot of people, both Jewish people and Gentile people, came to believe in Jesus, and, and they formed a little church there in Corinth. And you can read about that in the book of Acts chapter 18. So then Paul moved on to plant other churches. And after he moved on for some time, he started to hear reports about what was going on back in Corinth, about big problems in the church there. And so he wrote this first letter to straighten it out. And apparently uh, it wasn't a complete success because we have 2 Corinthians, so he had to write a second letter to follow it up. But there's a pattern uh, to this letter, if you were to study the entire letter, it breaks down into five sections addressing the five major problems in the life of this church. And, and each of, of the problems, one through five, follows the same pattern. First, Paul describes the problem. Then he brings in the gospel, good, good theology, to, to make, make sense of the problem, help with understanding the relevance of of the gospel, and then he shows them how they are clearly not living out what they say they believe. And so that's the pattern that we'll look at with the first problem that he addresses. The first major problem in the church of Corinth were major divisions in the church. Everybody was picking their favorite uh, leader and, and preacher to follow. So some were saying, I'm going to follow Pete. And others were saying, I want to follow Ben. And others were like, oh, no, I think I like Sacco. And so others were like, but Pete's so tall. Yeah, but, and the others would say, well, why does that matter? And so there's this back and forth, and people were picking sides based on popularity and based on 
the relevance of the message and the power of the message and, and the fine-tuning of things. It was very much, as we can relate to right now, like a political campaign. And so right from the start, Paul says, enough of this. There cannot be a division in the true church of Jesus Christ. Why? Because, he says, in the opening uh, lines of the book, the message that we all proclaim is Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. He is the one that we all must follow. And then uh, he says, he says that I, I didn't plant this church to gain a, a following. I, I planted this church that you might follow Jesus. And then he says in verse 17, quoting verse 17, lest the power of the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. I didn't preach with any fancy language. I wanted you to see and experience the power of God. So let's pick it up there, and I will read with us verses 18 to 31. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts Boast in the Lord. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. Let's pray together. Lord God, may we boast only and completely in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And God, may we see clearly the foolishness of this world and the wisdom that it, it uh, communicates out. And Lord, may we cling to the true wisdom that the world sees as foolishness in the message of the gospel. And not only see it and understand it and teach it, but, Lord, that we may live it out and so follow Christ all the days of our life. Amen. Our conviction is this. Preaching Christ crucified is God's power and God's wisdom. It is a means of grace God employs to transform lives, and God has been using that very message to transform lives 
here at Nielsville Presbyterian Church since 1845. It is the only message that transforms lives for the good, for what is best for living a born-again life. Good preaching is not theorizing or lecturing or politicizing or speculating or spoon-feeding. The pulpit is not a place for manipulation or appeasement or emotional tall tales or pulling on one's heartstrings. The pulpit, the place of God's Word, is for spirit-filled, Christ-centered, Bible-based, life-transforming instruction from God through the words of the preacher and through the instruction from God through the words of the teacher in the Sunday school classroom or in the small group that you might be in. It is through God's power and power through his word into our lives, not just the words we speak, but the way that we live out those implications that there is true life change. And any other message is the root cause of divisions, deceptions, and dysfunctions in the church. So Paul went to Corinth with a plain message of the cross. And he explained how the Messiah had to suffer and die to pay the penalty for sin. And I imagine most, if not all of us, have heard the message of the gospel. But imagine how radical it would be in Corinth, this great center of commerce and great thinking of the Greeks, to hear such a message. How his criminal execution defeated sin and death and demonic powers, set prisoners free, and how all people, regardless of their class, regardless of their race, Jew and Gentile alike, that covers everybody, regardless of your past, could have new life and be born again through belief and trust in this Jewish Messiah. Now, the young church celebrated this transforming message. But apparently, they started to take their eye off the ball because of the influence of the culture around them. To the Jews in Corinth, Paul looked foolish. His message scandalous and downright dangerous to suggest the promised Messiah, promised to the prophets of old in the Jewish scriptures in Torah, the idea that the Messiah would have to die the death of a common criminal, they demanded from Paul a sign. Show us a sign, Paul, or get out of here. They demand signs of Christ Jesus as well. And so they demanded these signs, and as you go back to Acts 18, you'll see that because Paul did not give them signs, but he just continued to preach this scandalous message, they brought him up on charges and got him arrested, but God protected him. Now the Greeks were, on the other hand, listening to Paul, this message about a flesh and blood God, this message about an incarnate God that you could know and that some of them spoke with and knew and ate fish with and who was resurrected to heaven bodily, they thought to themselves, oh, Paul, so naive. 
amusing but unsophisticated. They would say, everyone knows the material world is, is, is all we have. There's none of this spiritual world uh, is all that matters. The material world is meaningless. So all you have, Paul, is what you can touch and see with your eyes. But we know there's something truly transcendent. Oh, Paul, come now. Be reasonable. Use your mind. Think it through. They completely rejected the idea of a person who could be both a man and God. Crucified in such a gruesome way. How untasteful. And so, after Paul left... These two strong forces in Corinthian culture, uh, the Jewish thinking, but especially this Greek worldview, they became a big influence in the lives of this young church. And people started to think, well, you know what? Maybe they have a good point. Uh, maybe God didn't have to send the, the Messiah to die on the cross. Maybe that wasn't the way it had to go down. It does seem distasteful to imagine our king dying on a cross. And, and so some would, would track towards teachers that would speak more to a Jewish audience. Then others that were so deeply influenced by uh, the Greek philosophy would say, and, and, and this idea of flesh and blood, it just seems so unsophisticated as we're hearing in our streets. So maybe we should be influenced by whomever has the strongest argument whoever seems most wise in our own eyes, whoever has the latest idea. And so others tracked that way. But Paul knew the power and wisdom of God, what transforms people and brings them together instead of causing divisions in the church, was the message of the cross. He knew people without the Savior would spend eternity in hell. And that was dangerous. And he knew letting people just pick and choose what they would believe as, as it would suit them, he knew that was naive. And so Paul, 2,000 years ago, did not stop preaching, even though they called him a fool and said he looked ridiculous and arrested him and did far worse. Paul quotes Isaiah 29, verse 14. Quote, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. That was to remind them that, that God has long sought to dismantle the foolish pride of man for rejecting the revelation of God. He's basically saying, this is not new. This is not new that people see what God's revelation is and think that it doesn't make sense. And God's been doing this for quite some time. There is on, only one dividing line. People on one side of a great divide by their thinking that faith in the crucified and risen Savior is crazy and ridiculous. And on the other divide, those who've crossed over by God's grace and mercy, who have come to faith and saving belief on Christ, that he is the true Messiah. And as long as there is that bridge, that cross that bridges the two, we are given the privilege and the responsibility to live out and to speak out the message of God's saving love and grace. 
Verses 20 to 25, Paul starts to call out the leaders that are leading people astray. And I really admire Paul because I know I, I would be hesitant to call people out by name. But he calls them out. He says, where's the wise person? Where's the expert? Show me the scholar. Where are the best of the best thinkers of your day, the smartest brains, and I will show you how misguided they are. I think Paul is also calling out the Corinthians for allowing these divisions by, by choosing cultural relevant worldview points instead of sticking with the clear message of the gospel. Friends, what is the source of division in the church today? What is the cause of denominations across our land crumbling? Is it not that too many are built not on Christ as their cornerstone? In other words, Paul's saying, God has made fools of the smartest of the world. So Paul states the problem. The, the, the problem is these divisions and, and the cause of the problem of moving away from the gospel and, and good theology. And then he helps his friends to see the relevance of the message in their own lives. Look at verse 26. He says, Consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, or not many of you were powerful, not many of you were of noble birth. Verse 27 but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. What's he saying? He's saying the world thinks some of you are so insignificant you do not even exist. In the world's view, you do not count. But look at you now. Now, by coming to faith in Jesus Christ, you are part of God's family. What else is he saying? He said, God chose to pass over the know-it-alls and the wise in their own eyes and to choose you to come to faith. And he did it to bring shame on the foolishness of this world. God did what only God can do to save us and to bring us together. Friends, we're living in a world that needs some sanity, doesn't it? A crazy, mixed-up, foolish world. And he's called us forth to be salt and light and to stand with Christ. But not to do that in a prideful way. Not to do that in a way of, well, we've got it all figured out. Because look what he quotes from Jeremiah. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Coming to Christ strips away our pride. And then like any good preacher... Paul tries to make it also personal, his own experience. Look at verses uh, 1 through 5 in the very next chapter. He knows, like any good preacher ought to know, like I've learned and you've taught me, like our guest preachers uh, already know that we're coming this month, that it's not about our power of persuasion, our rhetorical ability, but it's about the power of the Holy Spirit to transform. He says this, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Verse 3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, 
but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The Apostle Paul had what would be the equivalent of two PhDs. He was no dummy. He was not inarticulate, but he knew the power came not from his ability to speak, not rhetorical argument or the power of persuasion, but came strictly from and solely through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what I want to be committed to as well. The plain message of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and the decision that it calls forth. Now, he seems to suggest that the only thing he talked about was the cross, but if you were to go on and, and read all of 1 Corinthians, and I would encourage you, if you are not reading uh, the Bible on a regular basis, continue to read 1 Corinthians. You'll see that you'll gain insights into subjects like spiritual gifts, marriage, love, lawsuits, life after death. And so it seems that he's talking more than just the cross, but the point is this. From Paul's perspective... You can't understand all those other things in life without first understanding and daily looking to the cross. The cross was always before Paul. What Paul wanted more than anything was to see people experience life change and transformation. And he knew it came by understanding and appreciating and bowing down before the cross of Christ. So I have one takeaway for you, Nielsville, while I'm away, and it's this, if you're taking notes. The cross we carry is absolutely relevant in our Christian walk. The cross we carry is absolutely relevant to our Christian walk today. Christ's cross saved us from, from eternal death, and we say amen to that. But it didn't save us from having to pick up our cross every day to follow Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24 to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And so when we look to the cross, when you come in to worship on Sundays, it is not only a place of substitution in the past that Jesus was substituted for you for your sin, we also look to the cross and see it as a place of daily execution of our own sin. A place that daily we pick up the cross that Christ has given to us, the burdens that we carry in this life that are unique to you, but also are common to all of us. And we follow him. It's a place of daily Dying to ourself, dying to our pride, killing sin, allowing old ways of thinking that clouded our thinking, I'm no good, I'm not lovable, I, I'm, I'm never going to amount to anything, allowing those things to go away and being replaced, I am a child of God, I am saved, I am new in Christ. And that's a work that happens every day of our lives until he calls us home. So the question is, what old thinking or old habits right now in your life need to die? What old ways need to be buried and left behind? 
So as you begin to think of that, you begin to realize how relevant the cross is for us today. Jesus also said, whoever wants to save his own life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Friends, the root problems Paul addresses in this letter all go into the point of people not taking the cross seriously every day in their lives. They're not letting the cross have its crucifying effect. They're saying, well, that happened a long, long time ago, and we've moved on from it. It's quite distasteful to talk about it so much. Look at our church. The elders of our church long ago saw the wisdom in having the cross front and center in all that we do because the Christian life is lived at the foot of the cross. So a final question, friends. Do you need the Lord to help you execute something in your life? Do you need the Lord to take away your foolish pride? There's bound to be areas in our life where we need God's grace to grow in our fellowship with him. What is it in your life? Last week, we had a town hall meeting with an update about denominational issues. And we began to see, and the congregation began to think about the divisions within our denomination and the deceptions and the dysfunctions that are rooted in the same issues that Paul was addressing here in the church in Corinth. Friends, the Lord is calling us to stick to our convictions stick to our convictions and not to be swayed by outside messages from this world that seem so relevant, but to follow Christ. Even if the world says that we look foolish doing it. So we pray, Lord, help us. So Nielsville, take up your cross daily. Encourage one another. Count this world to be the Calvary Road before the streets of gold. And people, we pray, will see Jesus in your life. And people will see the transformation of what is happening here in the life of this church. And some people will say, that's crazy talk. But still others will come and will believe and will be saved. And we will witness God's miraculous work and God will get the glory. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that we would only and solely boast in Christ and rely on the power and wisdom of Christ crucified, dead, buried, resurrected to new life, now living and reigning. Lord, we pray that you would help us to identify in our own lives things that need to be taken away, killed off, cut away, buried, left behind that we might live a new life, trusting not in our foolish pride, but humbly trusting in your precious word. Amen. Church, I invite you to stand. Let's sing our next song.